0: We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 1 today. So last week, we talked about the why of creation. You remember that we talked about the why of creation. Why has God made all things? And we learned from the Apostle Paul and elsewhere that that creation exists from and through and to God. As Calvin says, that it might be a theater to display His divine glory that as God has made all these things, we might take that, that Reformation slogan, Soli Deo Gloria, that all things would be to the glory of God alone. Now, I understand that if you've come from a different Christian tradition, a different background, maybe a broader evangelical background, where the glory of God is not emphasized, then it can at first seem like God is sort of an egomaniac. And you maybe have heard people say that. He just cares about himself, all he thinks about is his own name, his own fame. But when we zoom out a bit and understand that God is supreme above all else, that as the Baptist Catechism says, God is the first and chiefest being, then it is a sheer act of grace when He reveals Himself to us even in the smallest way, when we can know Him. And so it is an act of grace that God created all things and that we can know of Him through His creation and it is an even greater act of grace that we can commune with this God through His Son. And so we saw last week that God has created all things for His own glory to manifest Him, His praise and reveal Himself to men. Today, I want to think about the who of creation, the who of creation. Of course, we know the Bible says that God created. So maybe you say, move on, pastor, next subject. We know the answer to that one. But the Bible says more about who created than just generically God. So here's my big idea for today. The work of creation prepares the way for the work of redemption which prepares the way for the promised new creation, and this all comes about by the work of the triune God. The work of creation prepares the way for the work of redemption, which prepares the way for the new creation, the promised new creation, and this all happens by the work of the triune God. That was a mouthful. Creation prepares for redemption. Redemption prepares for the new creation it all happens by the triune God. I want to talk today about the trinity in creation. The trinity in creation. And so let's hear God's word for his church today. I'm going to read from Genesis 1, the very beginning of the Bible. As I've said, this is not a line-by-line exposition. We will highlight and spotlight various texts, but I want to go back again today to the beginning. And so here now, God's word for his church today. In the beginning... Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our great God, we do come again to pray because we confess that we are needy, that you are all sufficient and that we are insufficient. And so I pray, God, as we are gathered here together um, from from the elderly to suckling babes, Lord, that your word would be declared. And as we have ability at our stage of life, as, as our where we are in our walk with Jesus, that you would help us to hear and help these words to be beneficial to our souls. Lord, build up our faith today. Strengthen us in this great doctrine and in our great God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, boys and girls, I didn't tell you that there was going to be a pop quiz, but there is today a pop quiz. Some of you have, have started the catechism on question number one, and I want to go all the way back To the beginning, and I want to see if I can remember it, too. And I have a cue here. I'm cheating. Um, So the first question is, who made you? Very easy. God. Yes. What else did God make? All things. Yes, everything. Why did God make you and all things? For His glory. And how can you glorify God? In doing what He commands. By loving Him and doing what He commands. And why ought you to glorify God? Because he made me and and takes care of me. That's the kid's way of saying creation and providence. He made me and takes care of me. Now, the question, are there more gods than one? There's one God. Good job, sister. There's one God. And how many persons in the one God? Three. And who are they? Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Boom. Yes, I love to hear that. Our little ones are grounded in Trinitarian orthodoxy. Praise be to God. I want to set some groundwork here before we start just to remind us of these fundamental yet mysterious reality of the Trinity. And so we confess one God. Amen? Strictly, we stand on that rock, we die on that hill, we believe in one God. One God. And yet, that one God has eternally subsisted in three persons. The Father, the The Son and the Spirit. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is begotten eternally, always from the Father, and the Spirit is proceeding or poured forth from the Father and the Son. They are unique in that they are three persons, but they all share the one undivided essence of God. That is, the Trinity is not a pie where each person comes together and makes God, they all share equally in the one undivided essence. And yet they are three persons. And as we think about then their works or, this act, or their acts, uh, we say that the acts of the one God are undivided. God, all the persons of the Trinity, share the same will, goodness, wisdom, and power. If you want to read on something this afternoon, this is called inseparable operations. Um, Yet, while their works are united or undivided, Scripture at times shines light, a spotlight on specific persons in their functions in the works that God does. If you want to read about this, Google divine appropriation. Divine appropriation. Let me give you an example. Christian, who saved you? Does anybody know who saved them? God did, yes. Did Jesus save you? Did God save you? Is it okay to say the Father saved you? I think it is. There is three persons, one God, one act of salvation, and we can say, biblically, that each of those persons saved us, and yet their work was not divided. The Father's not over here doing his thing while the Spirit does something else. They act together, and yet there are spotlights on their roles. So I just wanted to remind us of some of those basics of the Trinity as we get into this discussion today. And the first thing that I want to I see, maybe it's a question. Is there any revealing of this mystery in the opening pages of the Bible, even the opening verses of the Bible? Is there any revelation of this triune God in the text that we just read. So let's look back into that passage again. Genesis chapter 1, the very first pages of the Bible, the first verses. And we read here In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. So clearly, we read this text and we see that God is there. Yes, it's not debatable, right? We see in the beginning God, and it says that God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there are times in the Bible where the Bible uses the name God generically for all the persons, for the Godhead, if you will. And there are times in the Bible where the the text uses the name of God for the Father, such as the Trinitarian benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, calling the Father God. So clearly, God is there. The Father is there, at least. God in a general sense. But we see something else happen. We see God speaking. Right? We see God's Word presence there in the creation account. And notice, it is not God's presence that brings about creation. It is God's word that brings about creation. It is the sovereign, authoritative speech of God that brings creation into existence from nothing. I want you to turn with me to another place in the Bible that begins with this exact same statement, in the beginning, and that's the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. It's the last of the four Gospels... And John says some things that are, that are profound. <clears throat> I fear that as Christians, just like anything else, you get something new and shiny and you're sort of captivated by it, and over time, it's like the child's toy. It's on the ground, it's under the bed, it's broken, set aside. We've heard these words so many times that they lose their, the awe that they're meant to inspire when we hear them. And so let's read John chapter 1 and verse 1. Here's what he says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so John, I believe very clearly, is taking his readers back to Genesis 1.1. If you were if you were a Jew who had cut your teeth on the writings of Moses, then someone gives you this gospel according to John, and you open it up, and the first thing you read is, in the beginning, where's your mind going? It's going back to creation, back to the very opening words of the Scripture. Now, let's see what he says about this word. The first thing we read is that the word was in the beginning. Now, we don't know who the word is. We don't know what the word is, is it a what, is it a who, but we see that it was in the beginning. He takes the reader back to Genesis 1 and says that the word was there. Secondly, he tells us that the word was with God. Now, I think for the first century Jew, this alone is a profound thing because he's read his Bible and he's been taught all of his life that there was one God and when that one God created, there was no one else there. It was just the one God in the beginning by himself. And now John is saying that whoever the Word is, he was in the beginning and he was with God. And he is distinct from God. Notice, the Word was with God. So he's not God if he's with God. But then he says the most profound thing, that I think a first century Jew rightly initially reading this, not understanding the Messiah yet, would say idolatry, would say, no, this is, this is wrong, He says the word was God. That is the word that was in the beginning with God. That is not God that is distinct from the father is also God himself is divine himself. And he goes on when he speaks about this word to say he was in the beginning. And so he's not talking about just words here. He's talking about a person. He calls him he he calls him him. And so what can we learn about this person? He was in the beginning. He was with God. That means he's distinct from God. But he is also divine himself. He is also God himself. And now let's go on. What else does he say about this word? He says that all things were made through the word, through the Son. So let me go back to Genesis 1 and let's think about it. How did God create all things? What? He spoke it. Yes, speak it, brother. He spoke it. He spoke words. It was through His divine speech that creation came to be. His speaking was the authoritative power that brought creation into existence. And John now tells us that the Father created through the Word, through the Son, and without the Word or without the Son, nothing could be created that was created. All things were made through the word, through the Son. And he goes on to say, in him was life. In him was life. That is, in the word, or in the Son, is the power to speak life into objects that are inanimate. In him is the power to breathe forth life, to speak forth life. And in him was light. Light in him was light. One brother said, in him was light that is inextinguishable. Light that could not be overcome. So when God says, let there be light, it is the divine power of the word or of the Son, in whom is light that shines into the darkness. Now, if we're still reading this here, maybe you're reading John's gospel for the first time and you're still trying to understand who or what is the Word? It's sort of a strange thing to call a person the Word. Well, in verse 14, he, he, he helps us to, without a doubt, understand when he says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 16, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. You hear this piling on. Jesus has the fullness and we have received grace upon grace. Verse 17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And this glorious, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Some of you are following along in your ESV saying, where'd you go, brother? You left us. (laughs) I, I, I brought in the New American Standard there because I think that the ESV's translation there is confusing at best. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father he has explained him he has revealed him he has exegeted the father for us and so there seems to be a mysterious veiled yet early revelation of god the son in the opening pages of the book of genesis as jesus excuse me as john says that the word was god he was with god he was in the beginning and everything was made Through him. Let's go back to Genesis chapter one and we see another person there. And I think this one is is far less mysterious and far less hidden, at least his identity. We don't know everything about him here, but look at verse two. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now what are we to understand about the Spirit of God here? Some people would tell us, now these are people that reject the doctrine of the Trinity, but some people would tell us that that the spirit is the active force of God, the power of God that emanates from him. It's his strength being poured out. The spirit is not a he or a him or a who, but it's more of a substance. It's more of a thing. It's the power that radiates from God. And And those that reject the Trinity that we would call Unitarians that believe that God is one in in essence and in person, that would reject the deity of the Son, Jesus Christ, would say the Spirit is not a person. He is simply a force. Maybe we might read this text and and we might picture the Spirit of God, the soul of God sort of leaving his, his body and hovering over the waters as if... God had a body, but for those children that have faithfully been catechized, the catechism says, what is God? And it says, He is God is spirit and does not have a body like men because John chapter 4 tells us that God is spirit, right? God has no body, but notice what the text does. It differentiates God creating the heavens and the earth and the spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. So all that to say, there seems to be some seed form, mysterious revelation of this triune God, even in the first three verses of the Bible. Another thing I want to I try to see that, that I think reveals this a bit for us is that there is plurality in God in Genesis 1. Now, I have another question for you, boys and Girls. When we say that something is plural, does anybody in here love English class? Good job. I despised it as a kid. Good for you. Um, English class, anyone? When we say something is plural, are we saying that it's one or more than one? More than one, right? We put an S. We say, I have a book, singular, I have books, plural. Right. And so we see plurality in God in Genesis 1. We see it in the opening verse. The name that's given to God there, the Hebrew word, is the word Elohim or Elohim. Now, Moses could have chosen a different word. There is a singular uh, version of this word, but he chose a plural noun. He says that God, plural, created, singular, the heavens and the earth. And he does this again in Genesis chapter 126. And we have to wrestle with this. Let me read this to you. Maybe you've seen this before and you've chewed on it. You've said, what is going on here? Genesis 1 and 26, Then God said, Elohim, plural, said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now let me ask you a question, beloved. Whose image are we made in? God's. But God there says us. And he says we. Now there's been some answers given for this, some ideas Uh, Some folks would say that in ancient times, kings would speak of themselves in the plural form. They call it sort of the royal we. Speaks of majesty when instead of saying just I, when he says we, it's as if the whole kingdom is behind him as he speaks of himself and his position as king. Um, Others would say that this is about the heavenly assembly of angels. and So God is saying, me, uh, in all of the... Heavenly court that's here. But then we have to ask the question with both of those, again, whose image have we been made in? Are we made in the image of angels? Because he says very clearly in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But God says us, and God says our Multiple times. And so what are we to discern here? Well, we've heard of already in the first few verses, we've heard of His Word, and we've heard of His Spirit. And so no, you cannot build your whole Trinitarian doctrine off of Genesis chapter 1, but it does seem as we look back now in hindsight, having all of God's revelation, that God is revealing to us in seed form... The fact that there is something more going on than a unitarian God, than one single person in the Godhead. We see all three persons acting in creation. Let me let me show this to you as well. I'm just going to read some verses. So the Bible attributes creation to each person of the Trinity. First Corinthians chapter eight. This is sort of the, the Christian Shema, uh, which is connected to Deuteronomy 6:4. First Corinthians eight and six. Yes, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. So Paul says very plainly, there's one God, the Father even. And from Him all things exist, and for Him all things exist. Or we could read Isaiah 45 and 11. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. And so clearly the Bible attributes creation to the Father. But it also attributes creation to the Son. Let me read that 1 Corinthians verse again. For us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Or how about Paul's writings in Colossians chapter 1, For by Him, Jesus, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created, here's that word again, through Him and for Him. But the Bible also says that the Spirit is responsible for creation. Listen to Job in Job 33 and 4. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So who created, church? God, yes. Amen. God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We might say it like this. Creation is from the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit. Three create, yet there is one inseparable act of creation. Now, I'm going to break this sermon down in a sort of old-fashioned Puritan style. That was the doctrinal section. Now, I want to get into some, as they call them, uses or application. What does this all mean for us today? So God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit created all things in one inseparable act, and yet the Bible attributes creation to each of them in different ways. How does this help us today? Um, My first point is this. Number one, understanding the work of the Trinity in creation helps us to better understand the work of the Trinity in redemption. So as we better understand the work of the Trinity in creation, we'll better understand the work of the Trinity in redemption. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. My brother Paul already shared this verse with us. So we see that God, the Father, blessed us in Christ, chose us before the foundation of the world. So we might say this, in redemption, the Father planned our salvation. Maybe we would say he's the architect, if you will. As, as Jesus says, all that the Father has given me, I will raise up on the last day. The Father planned, the Father chose. But look at verse 7 of Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of, of his grace. So the Father planned, but the Son accomplished our redemption. The Son is the one that became incarnate. The Son is the one that lived. The Son is the one that died a sinner's death. The Father planned, the Son accomplished. Verse 13 In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The Father planned, the Son accomplished, and the Spirit applies, or the Spirit perfects. He says here, the Spirit seals. All of the persons of the Godhead working toward our salvation, and so we might say again, redemption then, is from the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. Three saved, And yet there is one inseparable act of salvation. And I think it's worth stating here uh, that God is still in the business of saving sinners. Amen? Even to this day, 2,000 years later, the things that Jesus did on the cross at Calvary are being applied to needy souls on this earth even now. And as we just talked about the Spirit, it is the Spirit that actively draws men to Himself. It is the Spirit that quickens the mind and the heart. It is the Spirit that regenerates. It is the Spirit that convicts us of our sin and shows us our need of a Savior. Let me ask you, friend, is God drawing you today to Himself? In this season of your life, has God been drawing you more and more to himself? Are you having a greater desire for the word, for the things of God? Are, Are you having a burden for the reality that you have sinned, that you need to be forgiven? Are you struck at all by the goodness of God to make you and not blot you out from this earth, though you've rebelled against him every day of your life? Come today to the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. And the Bible says he will exalt you. He will lift you up. What is salvation? It's really a man being broken and being restored to something glorious that we were previously not. Turn away from your sin today, friend. Turn away from the things that you cling to and come to the Father through the Son by the Spirit and find life in Him. I'm not going to ask you to walk down this aisle because I don't want you to hope in the fact that you walk down an aisle, but I'm going to ask you, I'm going to exhort you to call upon the name of the Lord, to repent of your sin to flee the wrath of God and to flee to the mercy of God in Christ, in the Son, at the cross. And tell somebody about it. We'd love to help you. We'd love to walk you down that path. We'd love to pray with you and for you. Secondly, understanding the work of the Trinity in creation helps us better understand how we commune with the triune God, how we relate to the persons. Now, Some of you are familiar with a man named John Owen. He is sometimes called the Prince of the Puritans. Um, If you've read Owen, you know that he is very dense. He's a difficult read. I don't know if it's true, but some have said that he thought in Latin and he wrote in English. So he's thinking in the theological academic language of the day, and he's doing sort of a Google Translate on the fly into English. And so sometimes it's clunky and it's weighty, but it's glorious. It's work to get through, but it's worthy work. I don't claim to have read all sorts of volumes of Owen, but what I have is always very edifying. And he has a little book called Communion with God. And in this book, he speaks of the the unique ways in which we have communion with the persons of the Trinity. And so he says that, firstly, we have communion with the Father in love. Free undeserved eternal love that the father gives to those that are in Christ again listen to the words of Ephesians in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ so we are to see the father in heaven full of love for us as a loving father cares for his children and gives good gifts to his children Uh, protects His children, looks after His children, loves them with with unconditional love. Our Father in heaven loves His blood-bought sons and daughters with unconditional love. He has shown us that love that He would send His only Son into this world that we might be reconciled to Him. In that Trinitarian benediction, we we hear the words, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God be with you. The love of the Father. In 1 John, John says this, God is love. Now, who's he speaking of? He's speaking of God. But he's also speaking a bit more particularly. In this, the love of God was made manifest that God sent His only Son into the world. And so he's saying that the Father is love. Yes, all of the persons of the Trinity are love, but the Father uniquely relates to us in love. Secondly, we commune with the Son in grace. We commune with the Son in grace. We commune with Jesus as our mediator, the one who became like us, who graciously purchased our freedom, who delivered us from the wrath of God and the peril of our own sin. We read in the Bible that it is by grace that we've been saved, as we heard earlier, that we have redemption through His blood according to the riches of His grace. When Paul is wrestling with the the thorn in his flesh and he's pleading with God, remove this from my side, what does Jesus say? My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough to carry you through this trial. My power is made perfect in your weakness. We read in John 1 that from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. There's this piling on of grace that saints in Jesus Christ receive. We've been justified by His grace as a gift. And we read in that benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You all. And think about what this grace, what context this grace comes to us in, beloved. This grace comes to us in the context of a marriage union. We talked a bit about this in Sunday school. Um, it's something that's maybe underemphasized, maybe at least from my own ministry. There's something odd about calling Jesus our husband. And yet the Bible props this up as a glorious truth that Jesus is our bridegroom and we are His bride. Listen to Isaiah 54 and 5. Your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is His name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. And so as an imperfect, flawed husband in this life is loving and giving and sacrifices for his wife, Jesus times infinity is loving and giving and sacrificial for his bride, the church. Jesus Christ will not break his marriage covenant with you, beloved. Amen? He bestows the gifts of his grace upon his purchased church. And thus we enjoy communion with Christ, our, our Bridegroom, by grace. And thirdly, we enjoy communion with the Spirit as our helper and our comforter. As our helper and our comforter. You remember in John 16, Jesus is preparing to depart from this earth. And He's warning, He's preparing His apostles. You're going to be excommunicated from the synagogues. You're going to be put out from the community. You're going to be mocked and ridiculed. You're going to be brought before magistrates. Men will think that they're serving God as they seek to take your life. And he says, but fear not. Why? Because he will send his spirit to come alongside them. He will send his helper and his comforter to be with him. And Jesus goes on to say, now I don't know if you're like me, but maybe you had at times a little bit of holy jealousy as you see the apostles and they walked with Jesus, they heard his preaching, they sat under the God-man and and were sort of jealous, like, if I just had that. I mean, John laid his head on the breast of the Redeemer. And yet, Jesus says, it is better that I go and send my spirit. Now, why is that, beloved? I, I believe at least partially the reason here is because Jesus can only be in one location in any given time, right? His body is not omnipresent. And so when he's on the earth, he is stuck in one locale. But the Spirit of God can minister to every single individual in the church at any given time, all the time. He's not limited by the infirmities of Jesus' humanity. The Spirit of God does not need to sleep. He does not slumber. Jesus, as man, had to sleep. He grew weak. And weary, he had to rest his head. And the Spirit of God comes to us to comfort us, to help us. He applies the work of what Jesus did to all the elect. Even now, grace comes from God, a conduit from heaven through the means of grace for needy souls on this earth as the Spirit of God takes that which Jesus did and bought for us and applies it and brings it to us. As a gift, so that the infinite, eternal, transcendent God can be here and near to his church. Near to you in your troubles, beloved. Thirdly, understanding the work of the Trinity in creation helps us to marvel at the incarnation. Another pop quiz, boys and girls what in the world is the incarnation? We hear in that word incarnate, right? And that is Jesus becoming a man, right? Jesus taking a human nature to himself. Jesus taking on flesh. John 1 14. I want to read something to you from the book of Hebrews. Listen to this, verse 5 of chapter 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. A body you have prepared for me. Now, do you see the connection between creation and redemption? In creation, the Father prepared a body as He breathed life into Adam that He made from the dust. He had the plan that one day, the second Adam, His own Son, would come down and take on that own form as a man that was created there from dust in the garden. In the creation itself, God is planning that one day His Son would assume a human nature, become one of us, die, bear all our penalty, and be risen again to glory forever. Listen to the words of Pastor Richard Barcelos. He says, The Father sent the Son to become one of us, to save us, and give us the Spirit. The Son comes to be one of us, to save us, to give us the Spirit. The Father prepared a body for the Son to assume that believers might possess the Spirit. The Son who created all things became what He was not in order that we might become what we were not. The Son of God became man for us and for our salvation. Marvel at the reality of creation, preparing the way for the second Adam in the work of redemption. And lastly and finally, number four, understanding the work of the Trinity in creation supports and builds up our faith in God. Thomas Watson says this, he that made all things with a word, what can he not do? What can he not do? We've said that the Father planned and oversaw. The Son was the divine word that brought salvation into action. And it was the Spirit that perfected, the Spirit that finalized God's work in creation. God spoke and it came to be, beloved. Remember last week we heard that He never lifted a finger, He exerted no energy. The storehouses of His power remained infinitely full. He could have created a, a, a million worlds by the word of His power. There was not one bead of sweat that He had to wipe off of His brow at the work of creation. And Thomas Watson goes on to say, Rest on this God for help. Lean on this infinite Creator in your time of need. Cast your cares on the One that made all things. Because no trouble is too large. Amen. No sorrow is too dark. No pain is too extreme. No trial is too vast. So, beloved, let the awesome reality of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit creating all things in six days be a reminder to you that nothing is too big for your God. So whatever you may be facing today, Whatever troubles have come your way this week, whatever you're burdened by, whatever you're walking through, however low this valley may feel, however good things might be, your God, the Creator God, is able to bring you through them all unscathed and unharmed and better for it in the end. Amen. Let me pray.